Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology. Today's guest, Dr. Dan Krashen, is quadruple board certified, and this is my favorite type of conversation. We go all over the place from food banks, social justice, addiction, pain, and specifically dive into headaches in the last half of the show. We're so excited you're here. So welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we are here today with Dr. Daniel Krashen, who is a psychiatrist and pain specialist. He works with both inpatient and outpatient pain relief services, clinics, and hospital staff to collaborate on treatment of patients, but also works on improving systems of care delivery that benefit patients and populations across the continuum of care. Dr. Krashen has extensive experience working with the underserved and vulnerable populations, including the chronically ill, recent immigrants, and HIV patients in treatment of both psychiatric illness and chronic pain. He has lectured extensively and authored a number of publications on pain management. He works closely with residents and pain fellows and participates in teaching the future generation of pain relief physicians. He is board certified in psychiatry, pain medication, headache medicine, and addiction medicine. Dr. Krashen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, good to be here. We are excited to have this conversation, um, especially in this time. Currently, as we are recording, we are in a quarantine. So where things were kind of hard before, they are definitely different, maybe in some ways better, maybe in some ways worse. But I think this is a timely conversation to have about this, this mix of pain, psychiatry, and addiction. I want to start by saying that addiction is one of my favorite topics, uh, mainly because I think the concept that an idea or a substance kind of grabs our mind and kind of owns it uh, happens all the time in varying degrees. Like it can even be with sugar or chocolate or coffee or screens. There's many times that what we feel we have to do or must do interrupts and directs our lives, but we only call it addiction often when it's an illegal substance or when it, the imbalance is so great that it, it destroys our lives as seen from the outside. But addiction's everywhere. So it can be pizza, it can be bad relationships, it can be life patterns like staying up late or not exercising. And it sometimes it seems like we even have an addiction to just feeling badly. Otherwise, we'd all have this like perfect life, right? So I'm curious from your perspective and all of your extensive experience, can you kind of lay out for us what is this? Like what's the root of this? How are these things connected and what's the root of pain, um, psychiatry, and addiction? Well, that's a that's a big question. I know, uh, I know. <laughs> I like starting big. I'll, I'll I'll talk a little bit, and then we mm-hmm. can hone in a little bit, or sort of move move the uh, camera around, as so to speak, as as we go. I think one concept that's really important in thinking about addiction, in particular, and recovery. You mentioned how there's a whole spectrum of different uh, addiction-like behaviors that people have. And there's actually a really, there's a very lively argument among the experts about what counts as an addiction and what doesn't. There are proposed criteria, what we call research criteria for things like video game addiction, uh, social media addiction. And sometimes those are portrayed as frivolous. And then if you look at the people who are actually specialists in that, they're you know, there are some people for whom this 
if you read read about the cases, they they do look a lot like addiction from the outside. That's tricky. So one one aspect of addiction that's really important and has a lot of relevance for both pain, pain and psychiatry, I think, is what you could call the reward system, or sometimes I like to call it the motivational system. That's the system that it's very deeply rooted in the brain. It's something that we share with pretty much all, all the other mammals. And so I used to use uh, dogs in talks as a comparison because I figured that most people had a dog or have been around dogs know what dogs are like. Uh, some pe- I found some people would get offended if I they felt I was comparing them to dogs. Really what I was talking about is that on this level, dogs and people have an awful lot in common. And that's that's one of the reasons people love dogs. Dogs are like people, but they're, you might say, they're better in some ways. They're more understandable. They're pure. Cat, cats, cats, not so much, but cats are also yeah. great. All these mammals and also, also mice, uh, mice and rats, we all have this motivational uh, system in us. And often when people think, when people talk about this and they talk about this specific area, which is called the nucleus accumbens in the brain, uh, you'll hear pe- people talk about it as the pleasure center. Pleasure center is one way of s- talking about it, but I don't think that's the most useful way to talk about it. Um, the way I like to think about it is if you imagine that if you imagine that your life were a video game, for example, imagine imagine that you instead of living the life you live, you're Pac-Man. Okay, I hope young people still know what Pac-Man is. But you know that Pac-Man's life is pretty simple. He spends all day running around, eating pellets, and running away from ghosts. Every time he eats a pellet, he gets a point. And if he eats a ghost, then he gets a lot more points. Well, if you imagine that instead of Pac-Man running around a maze, it's a, it's a mouse running around a maze, it's not so very different, right? If you have a mouse running around a maze and you put little food pellets in that maze, the mouse, maybe not all at once, but over time, he's going to run around and scoop up all those food pellets. That little center in the mouse brain, which is, again, it's a lot like ours, but smaller, is going to be giving that mouse a reward each time. When we talk about, but you wouldn't necessarily say the mouse is feeling tremendous amounts of pleasure. Maybe they're just, maybe they're feeling a reward. It's, it's more like getting points in a video game. You're doing well. Obviously, the reason, or what seems like obviously, is the reason that mouse brains are wired like that is that that's a really good way to get mice to do stuff, which allows them to thrive and make little mice to keep the mouse to keep the mouse population going year after year. And so you can imagine the same thing for people that we have that in our brain. There's a part of it which is sort of treating all of this as sort of a big video game. And that a lot of the little pleasures in life, you know, having a nice cold drink of water on a hot day, uh, eating something tasty when you're hungry, those things are pleasurable. But more than that, you're also, they also count as points. Those are things that help you survive, especially if you think that our biology is evolved in a time of scarcity, then things like having having good food to eat was not was not simple. And for some people, it's still pretty difficult, honestly. If you're a caveman, basically, you know, we think that those people in the Neolithic time, they went they went without food for long periods of time. So if they got food, they would get a big reward for it, especially if it was tasty food with a lot of fat, like a nice, you know, like a nice fat antelope or something. That's 
a big reward, it's worth a lot of points in the game of survival. That's a good way to keep a mouse or a dog or a person sort of running down the track, doing things that take care of them. All this works pretty well. The thing is that people and other animals, for that matter, are clever and it didn't take people very long to figure out how to short circuit the system. So you can think of like when a cat finds catnip and rolls around in it, that cat is basically sort of short circuiting this cheat code. So it's sort of using a cheat code and it's getting extra points from its brain. It's winning the game of life. Now, catnip doesn't actually help that cat survive, but cats seem to think it's really fun judging from their behavior. And so people have spent a lot of time, you know, over all of history, finding things to do which are pleasurable and fun. If you look at uh, the reward system in the sort of broader sense, a lot of things appear to be, a lot of things that we do are sort of rewards, especially if you take a broader sense that we're not just individual organisms like Pac-Man running through an empty maze. We're social, we're social creatures. And so one of the things that is very rewarding to people is having relationships with other people. And so you can say that if, if, life, if human life is a game, it's a very complicated game and there are a lot of different ways to score points. What's happened in, in human civilization is that we've gotten better at better at finding these sort of cheat codes. And that's really where addiction, I think addiction comes in to become such a big problem is that we've gotten awfully good at creating a different systems, which sort of you could, in modern terms, you could say sort of hack this reward system. And so, and you can see that in a lot of, a lot of areas. Wine, for example, has been around for a long time. Distilled liquor has been around a lot less time. Uh, coca leaves have been used for a very long time in the Andes and they weren't terribly harmful, but uh, it wasn't until the late 1800s that people isolated cocaine from coca leaves and cocaine became very big, very popular. Uh, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychiatry, had a big cocaine problem at one point and actually burned a hole in his nose using cocaine. I, at one point, he, he initially thought that because he tried cocaine and said, this makes you feel really good. This must be a really great thing for your mental health. And so he started using it. He gave it to his patients. He thought that this was a really great treatment for depression because you know, you give it to a depressed person and suddenly they feel a lot better. He made this, it was one of the smartest people in whoever did psychiatry made the same mistake that every single person who's ever had problems with cocaine has made, which is this, this feels pretty good. It must be a good stuff. The fact is our brain, our brain is wired to notice, hey, suddenly, suddenly I'm getting a lot of reward. My point total, so to speak, is going up very quickly. And so I must be doing something right. As a side note, some of the other behavioral stuff, that's what doctors call as behavioral addictions. So things like playing video games to excess or even gambling, for example. There's a lot of evidence that the way those games are structured, the way gambling is structured is to take advantage of the way the brain works. Uh, just a very simple example is that one of the most uh, reinforcing ways to give a reward is to not give it every time. So if you reward someone, if you reward your dog, for example, or your little kid, you know, with a treat every time they do something, they'll do it more often. But if sometimes you don't do anything and sometimes you give them a really great reward, that will really get their attention and they'll be very, and they will increase that behavior a lot more. That's a training technique that, that people can use. 
It's also a training technique that video games and gambling and gambling facilities use. We don't think of it as training. The fact is, if you go into a casino and you start playing you know, a slot machine mm-hmm. and you pull the lever 10 times and lose your money, and then on the 11th time, you make all the money back plus a little bit more, that time makes a big impression on you. I'm not a big gambler, but if you know anything about gambling, you look almost all almost all gambling games, whether they're new or old, they all work that way. And that's and that's no accident. It's because that's what makes a gambling game fun and exciting. And like with a lot of the substances we've, I've mentioned already, these things start off as fun and exciting. And then for some people, they become problems very quickly. And that kind of gets to the second point I wanted to make that sort of a psychological fact of the way the way the human brain works. I'm not sure if this this part is true for dogs or not. So I'll, I'll stop talking about dogs. But when it comes to people, there's really sort of two time frames that we that we tend to think about now and later. Neuroscientists have actually discovered in the prefrontal cortex there's actually two different sets of neurons. So you can almost think of this as like a car switching between first gear and third gear or something like that. The name names kind of suggest what it is that now is what, what am I doing right now? Uh, what should I be doing right now? And the later is what should I be doing now that will make sense later? I'll give you a really simple example of this. And by the way, there's uh, one of the people who was a big a pioneer of this study was uh, Dr. Kahneman. He wrote a bunch of books like Thinking Fast and Slow, where it gets into this. He did some elegant experiments where, for example, if you ask someone at 8 a.m., what will you have for lunch today? Most people will say, most people will pick something relatively healthy. I'll say, you know, I think I'll have some grilled fish with a little lemon on top and some mixed vegetables. And then if you ask them at 11.59, one minute before they run down and grab something for lunch, you know, in a crowded cafeteria or food court or whatever, you ask them, they'll say, I'm just going to grab something. Pizza sounds good. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the difference between that is that the later part of your brain is kind of thinking ahead and thinking, well, what kind of food is going to be good for me in the long run? And the now part is like, what do I want right now? That, that later part takes longer to work and it takes a little more energy to work. So this is really relevant to addiction is that addiction and addictive type behaviors tend to keep people in the now where they tend to be focused on what do they need right now? And it short circuits those thoughts about later. I think everybody has had that experience, especially especially now, where people are staying in and uh, not going to restaurants so much that decide, am I going to you know, take time and whip up something fabulous, or am I going to reheat something frozen and eat, and eat quickly? Obviously, there's going to be some difference in the, what that time is, but if you think like at 11, if you ask a person, versus 11.30, versus 10.30, how do you bring those pieces together so that you can actually think ahead and make good decisions and act on them. Well, this is, this is actually really interesting because um, it's one of the areas where um, the uh, psych- psychology overlaps with something that, for example, people in AA meetings have known for a long time, where um, there's a saying in AA, you know, never get too lonely, hungry, or angry. So it's not just a matter of how close 
of how soon the time is. One of the big differences between eight in the morning and, and noon, it's not just that the decision is a lot closer now, it's also you're probably a lot hungrier. Breakfast, is, breakfast was a long time ago. And so now you're really feeling hungry. And maybe you've spent four hours doing Zoom meetings mm-hmm. with people with bad reception and trying to handle various stresses. So your willpower stores are kind of depleted. There's another nice experiment where they are uh, showing sort of the power of this, where they had, it was one of those clever experiments where they have people doing one, doing one thing and thinking that the experiment is about one project, is about one thing that they're testing, when actually they're testing something else, which is barely noticeable to the participants. I like those studies because I think they're a little, they're a little more honest. Uh, and so the study involved people doing something with numbers and um, the, main, the main difference was that they had to remember numbers. And most people can remember seven-digit numbers. With, with a little difficulty, anything over seven numbers is, is challenging. That's why, that's why phone numbers are seven digits long. And so basically the only difference between these two, gra- two groups of undergraduates was that one group was memorizing nice short numbers like three or four digits. The other group was remembering, was remembering seven and eight-digit numbers. And then they asked them, while they were working in here, they were saying, by the way, we have a snack arranged for you guys. Uh, you have the choice of either a piece of chocolate cake or an apple. Uh, which one would you like? And they just mentioned this in an offhand way while they, were doing, while they were doing the experiment. And of course, that was what they were actually interested in. And so what they found is overwhelmingly the people who were doing the harder problems, they all picked the cake. You know, and you think remembering long numbers is mental work, but, you know, it's not it's not brain surgery uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not ditch digging or anything like that. But even that was enough to sap some of people's mental energy uh, mm-hmm. or brain energy, if you will. And that led to them then making uh, a choice with sort of the now part of their brain, which and the now part of the brain, you know, loves sweets and fats and immediate satisfaction it thinks about. And it's like, yeah, that that's what I want. The more, the better. So what we're talking about then is, the psychology part of, or the psychiatry part of addiction really is about level of overwhelm in the mind. That's a very big part of it, yes. And then the other part of it is a sense of identity. The first piece you were talking about, about the Pac-Man, I can see how it's not only about the reward, it's about the perception of the reward or the perception that we're on track for help, for survival. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. that we are driven really by those two, by those two components. Well, once you start looking at people this way, um, you start noticing a lot of things. And one of the things uh, which jumps out uh, a lot to me is if you look at people who are suffering from poverty, you know, in the lower socioeconomic levels, as opposed to people who are, you know, just say comfortable people, middle class above, you know, both groups might be under a lot of stress. But one of the things which is really noticeable when you look at people's, um, people's reactions is that uh, the time horizon tends to be uh, shorter for a lot of people who are suffering poverty. What does that, that mean, the time horizon is shorter? Just a very simple example. When you talk to, and this is, I don't want to offend anybody based on stereotypical, but for someone who's genuinely, genuinely poor, you ask them, well, what's the biggest financial decision you're going to make? And their decision is, how I'm going to pay rent on the first, 
Okay, mm -hmm. maybe they're uh, maybe they're worrying about that every day, and they're actively working every day to make sure that they're going to have enough money to pay the rent so they can stay so they can stay in their home. Someone who is middle class, maybe they're thinking about, gee, I'm wondering if I'm on track with my retirement, or is it time to buy a house? You know, should I try to change my job because this job is not really paying me what I'm worth? Those are all real valid problems. I'm not, I'm not going to say any of those are what, what people call first world problems or uh, those aren't jokes, but those are all things that you have, people have time to think through them frequently and they have time to consider them. Whereas if you're really trying to figure out how are you going to get through this tricky, tricky situation at the end of the month, then asking someone, where do you see yourself in six months or a year, like they do in, um, like they do in job interviews, that question is going to be very hard for someone to answer if their time horizon is shortened like that. And that feeds into what we've been talking about, about the now versus later parts of the brain and motivation, that if you get a windfall, the behavior of a lot of people are really suffering from poverty, if they get a windfall, is that uh, often they will spend it relatively quickly. And economists know that. Right now, we're in the middle of this pandemic, which I haven't mentioned too much. But part of it is with the financial crisis, people have been talking a lot about what's the best way to keep the economy going. And one of the things that I've heard on the radio is they said, well, you need to give poor people money because poor people will spend it. You know, they'll, they'll spend it on things right away, where if you give it to rich people, they'll hang on, they'll hang on to it. And some of that is because they don't, some of that is probably because maybe it doesn't mean as much to them, but some of it is that I think is also this psychology that mm -hmm. if you're, if you have a small, small windfall, you know, you get a mm -hmm. check you weren't expecting to get and you're, and you're poor, there are a million things that could go wrong between now and the end of the month. So you could set it aside, but you might also get something that you've been needing or really wanting for a while mm -hmm. and get something that get something that's small and concrete mm -hmm. that you can then definitely hang on to. You know, if you have a, if your shoes are wearing out, you can get a new pair of shoes. And then that's one thing that you're not worrying about every day when you go out and worrying that it, you know, if it rains, that your feet are going to get wet, for example. Whereas putting that in a savings account, when you figure that you're just going to end up taking it out of the savings account within a week because of some, because of some ongoing problem, that isn't very, very appealing to people. There's a definite sort of psychology, which is, which I think is driven by poverty. And it's one of the things which keeps, it's one of the things that makes it hard to get out of poverty, I think, honestly, is because it may lead to people missing out on opportunities, on the opportunities they have or not handling them as well as they could. And I think that also is, is one of the reasons that um, people in those situations may be more vulnerable or, and, and have a harder time recovering from uh, sub, from addiction problems. Absolutely. If you don't have a hope for tomorrow, it's very hard to invest in today. Right. How, what does that look like if, you know, and we're talking about different levels of windfall, um, certainly the stimulus checks that are coming out, they're, my understanding is they're going to um, lower income folks first and then kind of slowly working up the ladder in terms of right. the disbursements. Um, but, you know, that amount of money is, is probably going to go fairly quickly for most people. For people who are raised poor and then are able to financially stabilize, what does that look like as they get older? I think a lot of people have to go through sort of a process of re-educating themselves and reassuring. It. And some of that is sort of learning new reactions. And some of it is learning, 
is being being pretty cautious. Um, I'm old enough that I had grandparents who lived through the Great Depression and did the stereotypical things with saving string and folding up aluminum foil mm -hmm. uh, into little packets and keeping it in their drawers mm -hmm. so they needed it again. And it seemed pretty weird to me uh, as a 70s kid uh, that they'd do these things. And my parents explained that they'd lived through this time of deprivation. And on some level, my grandparents, who are, have been passed for a while now, that on some level, they weren't sure that, that those times weren't going to come back and they didn't want to be caught Mm -hmm. uh, unprepared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens to wealthy people if they lose their money? Wealthy people in our country, when you have enough money, you don't really get poor. You have enough connections that you can kind of come back. Or what does that look like? Well, uh, there's a really useful concept in psychology and in uh, software science called social capital, which I think right. is what you're talking about. That if you are, um, and basically it's sort of a we could loosely be called connections so that mm -hmm. if you lose your job doing A, then, or you even lose your home, then maybe you have relatives who can help you out. Um, and so I guess in, in these times, that would be someone who, for example, well, there was just a story in the New York Times recently about someone who uh, left, left Brooklyn um, during the pandemic and to get away from there and they moved into their parents vacation house in new mexico and then their parents came and brought them a bit and brought them groceries and stuff like that and they did their quarantine there so um leaving aside the question of whether that's that's a good thing to do i don't think that i don't think that was the greatest idea just having um just having those options of being able to leave your home on short notice having a car that works well enough to, to trust it to get all the way across the country, being able to pay for gas, and then having a parent at the other end of the trip who has a whole house that's empty and ready for you and is ready to help support you. That's All those are very nice things, which a lot of people have, but then other people couldn't even dream of them. That makes a really huge difference. So if, you know, So if two people are sort of both climbing up a mountain and they both fall off, one person is falling you know, is falling onto some hard rocks and the other person has a, and the other person has a belay line so that mm -hmm. they may fall and have a nasty shock, but they have somebody down on the ground who kind of is pulling up the slack and able to save them before they hit the rocks. And that makes a pretty huge difference, not just right in the moment, but then if you look how, if you look how these people and their kids are doing five or 10 years later, it would not be hard to see which person which person had the fallback and which person didn't. The one uh, sometimes when a family falls from a great head like that, it'll it'll literally just shatter. Um, yeah. The parents will break up. The kids will end up in foster care, getting distributed to various parents or various relatives, and that's that's sort of the end of the story. So that that's a really huge difference. One aspect of the coronavirus pandemic is that we are looking at a contraction of our economy. A number of us will feel that hit. To use your perfect analogy, if we are now falling off the side of the mountain, we know that some of us are in positions where we can be caught or we can kind of set up and remember that we have a belay device on and look to who's holding it on the ground for us. Or in that social capital world, kind of people with money may hold it for each other. We know that we live in such a stratified society so that rich people 
and working class people don't necessarily, or poor people don't necessarily like hang out together. So if there are those of us that do have resource or that do have capacity, how can we put out belay devices for others? What does that look like? If we want to save our whole society, if we want to save our culture, one thing we know is that it requires all of us. In a society with greater inequality, both the poor and the rich die sooner. Our mortality is all impacted. So if we were to stay with a selfish sense of, I want my life to be good, what are some things that we can do? We put Uh, the bully device out for others. Honestly, that's a big question. And I don't want to get super political, but I think this is one of the functions for big organizations to exist. One thing that people have um, uh, commented about before American society is that American society has gotten pretty atomized. There was a famous book about 10, 15 years ago called Bowling Alone that mm-hmm. talked about um, how uh, people used to belong to clubs a lot more. Mm-hmm. They were Americans were what they called joiners. So if you think mm-hmm. of Fred Flintstone uh, in the in the cartoons, how he belonged to a fraternal order of eagles or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, lots of people joined that. And aside from churches, there are really not so not that many clubs uh, that people join as much anymore. People mm-hmm. are much more atomized. And of course, right now, people are incredibly isolated because we're all, we have a stay-at-home order in a lot of, a lot of the country, a lot of the world. And so people are largely commuting, communicating to each other just over computers, which is super, which in itself is super isolating. It probably doesn't have all the vitamins that we need mm-hmm. for human communication. I think some of those structures, you know, that are sort of inter- sort of the intermediate structures that are sort of in between individual people and individual families, and then the state. I think, I think those have kind of atrophied, and we're we're feeling that now to some extent that there isn't that there aren't as many social organizations able. to to step up, but where, where you do have them, I think that's probably a really good place to start. Food banks in particular are really important now. You know, people can't go very long without food. And uh, right now, food banks aren't getting donations from restaurants because restaurants aren't doing much business. Uh, they're not able, because of safety concerns, they're not able to take donations from individuals. Um, so uh, they're having to buy everything. And at the same time, a lot more people are asking for or are needing uh, help with meeting their needs for food. And I've seen some pretty scary looking pictures from other states um, in the news from places like Texas and um, other states where they have a drive up food bank and there would just be a line of cars that looked like Mm. it was hundreds of cars long of people just waiting in line so that they could get a bag of groceries. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this, that, I think that's a really good example of this sense of we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're all in it together in part because, you know, viruses don't have politics. Uh, viruses don't, you know, viruses don't know about, you know, race or class or anything like that. They just have viruses just react to the are just react to the population. So if part of our population is unprotected, mm-hmm. um, then that's, they're really vulnerable. And, um, you know, the homeless, the homeless population in Seattle, for example, is something I worry about a lot because mm-hmm. they're pretty exposed and a lot of the, and people are, 
um, a lot of them are facing not great options in terms of uh, living outside, which is pretty mm -hmm. dangerous, or going to a shelter, mm -hmm. which is also also may seem pretty dangerous right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but another another way that everyone is connected is that uh, if people literally can't get food through no fault of their own, historically that you know that's led to bad things happening. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you think of the French Revolution; that a big part of that was because there were a few years of uh, failed uh, harvests because of a uh, volcanic eruption. And so people are really hungry. You, when you hear this, the famous story about uh, Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake, she was saying that because people are saying the peasants have no bread. And the reason the peasants had no bread is because there wasn't enough wheat to go around. Wheat was really expensive. And so the peasants were literally starving. When people are hungry and they can't feed themselves or their families, people get desperate and they will do a lot of, a lot of bad things that uh, because... Uh, because they don't see any other option. So um, it's, incredibly, it's incredibly important that we as a society don't back people into a corner like that. Like I said, especially in a society that's a developed country where we actually do have a ton of resources. Like I said, there's no, there's no shortage of food. There's just, it just isn't distributed. It just isn't distributed very well right now. So, so that I think that's a really good place to start. Is now volunteering at a food? They may not, they may not want or need for volunteers right now. I don't know. You'd probably check check out your neighborhood when neighborhood food bank. But I'm sure they'd love donations if you can do it. Uh, helping out, and then I think if you know people in your neighborhood that need that need help, I think that's a really good place to start in those in those small small areas. Um. And then I think on, on a bigger sense, le letting people, you know, making your voice heard. Um, it's tricky. Um, it's tricky to make your voice heard at a time like this when things are so noisy. Uh, I just heard this morning that um, there's a big uh, demonstration in Michigan um, in, the, in the capital uh, where blocked the streets with their cars just something we've seen before in France. I don't think we've ever seen in Michigan, but the idea was it was a demonstration where people could share their anger with the situation. Short of that, I think uh, making your voice heard at the local, state, national level is is pretty important. It can that can seem like kind of a hopeless task sometimes, but I think I think it is important, especially um, for people like you said who are able who are able to speak up and feel like they have the the time the space and the ability to make their voices heard. You know, someone, you know, someone who doesn't have electricity, doesn't have electricity uh, can, um, and all the libraries are closed right now, is not going to be able to send emails to their congressman, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we, you know, those of us who are in that position can, can speak up. Yeah. Um, uh, that that kind of brings me one other thing I wanted to mention as far as as far as addiction I think is a really important point is that one of the most dangerous uh, things when a recovery from addiction is being alone is being alone with your thoughts mm -hmm. for uh, too long. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying maybe not for every single person, but for a lot of people um, who have had experience with addiction. 
uh, they'll find that their brain is pretty good at sort of constructing alternate realities or alternate explanations of things. If you've ever gone to an AA meeting or another 12-step meeting, one of the big things they talk about in, in there is, is managing sense of resentment. Um, that, that's a really interesting topic, but I think, I think part of what that comes down to is that everybody, everybody rationalizes all the time. We're always constantly sort of rewriting, rewriting our life story to make us look better, which is in some ways is totally healthy psychologically. Uh, if um, it wouldn't do, if we were a hundred percent honest with ourselves all the time, it would be, it would be kind of crushing. Yeah. <laughs> but it can be kind of dangerous for people who are sort of struggling with an addiction or for that matter, who are struggling with, um, you know, a real sense of depression or anxiety is that, you can start having these troubles, start having these troublesome thoughts or these resentful thoughts that will start sort of driving your thoughts more and more. And it's, it can be very important or very helpful to people to then air those out. And it's really striking as, as a psychiatrist, how often people have talked to me and said, well, do you think, doctor, do you think X, Y, and Z? And I've said, well, X is probably true, but Y and Z are conclusions you're drawing. And, and here's a different way to look at it that seems more plausible to me. And people will suddenly relax and be like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And that could be anything. That could be my boss is busy. They don't actually hate me. Um, that expression on my wife's face was worry, was worry about her ailing mother and not irritation with me talking to her it could be a lot of things but all of those sort of thoughts that creep in, that tend to creep into people's heads you know isolation tends to make them worse uh they don't and so one thing that people have been one thing that i think is maybe a positive thing that's come out of that if if, if there are any positive things is that a lot of people have been doing things like zoom um 12-step meetings and support groups i think for some people who are who feel socially awkward or feel uneasy in groups that actually might be pretty liberating to be able mm -hmm. to just sign into that and even keep your camera off. So people can't see your facial expressions, mm -hmm. you know, or see what you look like, but they can just hear in there. I think that, I think right now that's a lifeline for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't really encourage anybody, you know, anybody who's listening to this um, who feels like they're having trouble like that, that is something and you know, people are finding that really helpful right now. It's mm -hmm. great. What a great show with Dr. Dan Krashen so far. Please be sure to share this with your friends and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our other shows as well. We talk about everything that can help heal your neurology. You can get all the details of our clinic and the services we offer through our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. One great option is to sign up for our newsletter because that way you'll stay on top of everything as it happens and what it is. Remember, you can find out more about Dr. Dan Krashen there as well. And let's get back to the rest of our episode. Let's come back a little bit to Center for Healing Neurology. You will be joining our clinic. Who should come see you here? With headache patients, uh, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of headache. I've been trained So all of them. I think uh, some of the patients who um, I think might especially benefit are people who've you know, had trouble benefiting from, you know, just seeing their primary care doctor 
mm-hmm. um, or people who maybe have uh, headache, have headaches as well as other kinds of body pain. Uh, in particular, headaches and fibromyalgia are a bad, can be a bad combination. Mm-hmm. Um, or people who are having headaches that are very frequent, you know, what we call chronic my chronic migraine mm-hmm. or other types of chronic headaches, especially mm-hmm. when that when that's connected as it often is with um, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think that those are patients that can especially benefit from sort of a comprehensive integrative approach. And what are the tools that are in your toolkit for treatment? Well, there, um, there's really a lot. I do mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, medications are important. This is their probably more options for uh, headache medicines right now than there ever have been in history. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, um, so there's never been a good time to have headaches, I guess, but this is a better time to have (laughs) headaches than Uh 10 years ago. Uh We've got more options there, but um, medications alone often will not do, will not do the trick. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of us will also talk about lifestyle modifications um, and uh, behavioral Behavioral changes, so things like a relaxation therapy, uh, biofeedback, um, self-hypnosis type techniques. Um, uh, in some cases, uh, patients will really benefit from procedural treatments. Um, those procedural treatments are sort of on hold right now with, you know, with elective procedures, but uh, pretty soon we'll be able to do those things like nerve blocks for selected patients. Those are really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there's medication involved, it's not, it's not like a pill you're taking every day. Mm-hmm. Um, those can be very helpful. Um, exercise therapy is also really helpful. And that is both, um, that's both the form of different kinds of aerobic exercise, which I counsel people on, and then specific exercises for the neck, because uh, most people have some issues with their neck muscles. You know, your neck works all day long, keeping your head from flopping over. Mm-hmm. And so the neck can get pretty tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and stiff, and that actually can trigger headaches in a lot of patients. The first medical training I ever had was a wilderness EMT, and they described that part of our body as a bowling ball and a shoestring. Uh, that, that's a really that's a that's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I usually uh, I usually use the analogy of like a ten pound bag of flour balanced on a stick of bamboo, but yeah, it's the same idea. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a, a really exciting new area of headache medicine that's come out recently is what some people are calling uh, electroceuticals. I think that's a weird word, but uh, basically it's different kinds of electrical stimulation to affect headaches. And the basic principle is that your nerves work on electricity and headaches are all basically conditions of the nervous system. And so, and neuroscientists have found that by stimulating um, the nerves with the little electrical signals, you can either make um, nerves either more active or you can kind of put them to sleep. And so uh, they've developed more and more devices that can do that. And one of the really nice things is that um, it's much easier and much quicker for a couple of software engineers and electrical engineers to build one of these devices, test it, and get it approved by the FDA than it is to do a medicine if to create a new medicine costs you know 10 over 10 million dollars and it takes a decade but if you have a great idea for an electrical stimulator 
because they don't because they're not using a lot of electricity and they're not dangerous. The FDA is pretty quick to approve them if they actually work. And so there are more and more options coming out on the market. And I've had some patients who've had just fantastic results with them. Oh, fascinating. That's interesting. Including things for like gastroparesis? I'm not familiar with treatments for gastroparesis. Okay. Um, honestly, I think I'm sure I'm sure they're working on it. That'd be trickier because you'd have to get the um, you'd have to get the electrodes uh uh, down down in the stomach or close to it. The, the advantage with headaches is that uh, your head is right out there. And so <laughs> you, can, you can put electrodes all over it if you want. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Great. Um, I will say that they've developed some interesting uh, techniques for what's called non-invasive stimulation, where you put the electrode on the skin and then it will stimulate uh, nerves deeper down. And that that's something which is actively which is actively being researched. And so, I think over time, like I said, I think that the this this area of medicine is evolving much quicker than medicine, than uh, pills mm-hmm. and other pharmaceuticals are evolving. And so, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, more of those types of tech, technologies become available in the near future. That's amazing. Some of these devices we already know, like the cephaly, might fall into this cat this category of electroceuticals. Uh, yes, yeah, that's a, g- a good example. Okay, so cephaly is a migraine device that, to me, looks like a princess tiara that kind of goes across your forehead and um, does some stimulation. There's tens unit tens units, which also are similar. Correct. Um, what are, What are some of the other ones that you've used? Uh, well, there's a device called an H wave. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a sort of like a second generation uh, TENS unit mm-hmm. that it's kind of similar, but it uses um, a different, it uses a different, more advanced uh, stimulation mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. I've had some patients do, do quite well with those. Um, there is a device called a gamma core. Mm-hmm. We do have that here at our clinic. Yeah. So patients can come try that here and we do prescribe it, but go ahead and you can describe um, it. That would be great. Yeah. The gamma core is a is a little device that it basically um, it's about the size of a bar, of a pack of cigarettes, and it has two knobs on one end. And you put the knobs on your neck, right next to your windpipe, and then it sends a signal. And this is the sort of non invasive uh, stimulation I was talking about, where it goes right through the skin and it stimulates a nerve called the vagal nerve, mm-hmm. and that vagal nerve. Uh, is very important to controlling our autonomic nervous system. So it controls things like how fast or slow your heart beats and your blood pressure, and also how basically the level of activation of your brain overall. Mm-hmm. And so they've been able to fine-tune the signal so that it affects just the brain without affecting your blood pressure or your heart rate. And so it, this can be very helpful for people with migraines and for cluster headaches. Mm-hmm. And again, it's nice because it has very few side effects. I've tried it myself in, my, in a headache conference, and it gave me kind of a pleasant, tingly sensation all over. But, mm-hmm. but it didn't do anything else. So, like I said, these, so these are generally treatments that people can use with confidence. Then there's a very new one called a Nervio, mm-hmm. uh, which... Um, it looks a lot like an. It looks a lot like the old iPod Minis, if mm-hmm. that may be an obscure reference to people. But basically, it's, there's a little armband that goes around your upper arm, and a little box that goes on that armband, and you pair it with your smartphone, and then 
you use the smartphone to s turn it on and then it sends a single a signal into the large nerves of your arm. The arm has a really big nerve um, nerve plexus called the brachial plexus right, right in your armpit. And so that acts as sort of like a superhighway going straight into your nervous system. And so it sends a signal into there, which basically acts as, maybe you could call it like a third generation TENS unit in a way, where it um, basically sort of scrambles, scrambles and calms down the, um, the pain signals coming from elsewhere within the nervous system. And is that for pain anywhere? Um, it right now it's approved. Right now it's approved for a headache. Headache. Okay, still headache. Right. Okay, great. And I've asked I've asked the uh, distributors about using it for pain elsewhere, and they because of FDA regulations they aren't really allowed to say it. it. To me, it seemed to me it seems like it would be helpful for other things. And I'd love to use it. Uh, have patients with fibromyalgia, for example, who have whole body pain. I'd love to have them use it and see how it works because I would think. I would expect it to be helpful based on its mechanism, but I don't have any data about that as yet. It's an, kind of an unanswered question. And do you know frequency-specific microcurrent? Do you have any experience with that? Um, is that the same as uh, transcranial direct, direct current stimulation? Uh, it's a little... That, I think they are different. Oh, okay. Yeah, there, there's so many different technologies. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of... Um, there are some interesting technologies that just use direct current, um, direct current to specific parts of your scalp, which it's not a very big current, but it's actually enough to make one side of your head a little more positive and one side a little more negative. Ooh. And people have been researching uh, ways to um, affect that. There's some interesting applications with that because you know our brains aren't perfectly symmetrical. You know, people talk about left-brained and right-brained people, and that's that's really kind of pop psychology, but there is, you know, there's a kernel of truth to that. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a technology which is simple enough that people are just getting plans over the internet and trying it out for themselves. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. Uh, huh. But uh, it's, it's uh, the research into it is only in the early stages. I'm not, not familiar with the frequency specific technology that you mentioned. Okay. okay. Anything else you'd like to say about procedures or techniques? The importance of multimodal uh, treatment mm -hmm. and headache. Mm -hmm. um, the, I'd say that uh, headache conditions, it, uh, like a lot of medical conditions, the, the, you know, they exist on a spectrum, and some people um, will get better with sort of the first thing they try. Mm -hmm. And not too many of those patients will end up seeing a headache specialist because they you know, maybe they try some things that they read about in a magazine or they see their primary care doctor and they try one thing and it works great and everybody's happy. Um, and those, those people are very lucky. Um, mm -hmm. You know, their problem turned out to be pretty simple. But there are an awful lot of people out there who, are, um, who have more complicated conditions. And honestly, there are some pretty, there are some uncommon headache conditions out there. But more often people have headaches which have gone on for a long time, they've become sort of entrenched and they're what we call treatment resistant. Where at that point, even, even one, one medicine, even one great medicine may not work that well and it may not work that fast. And so 
what I think is really key is that we talk about um, multimodal therapy in patients like that. And what multimodal is a fancy word, but really what it means is just trying different things, uh, sort of like a uh, sort of like the you know the uh, big menu in a Chinese restaurant where you try one something from column A and something from column B. It's uh, really important because each of these things works through a different channel, typically, and so. Exercise, we know that exercise, for example, helps headaches, but it doesn't help headaches in the same way or through the same mechanism as taking a specific pill does or getting a occipital nerve block in the back of your head does. And so if you do two or three different things that work in different ways, then what what you can have or what we're hoping to get is synergy where then all these things will work together. Mm-hmm. And that is the advantage that typically it'll um, typically the beneficial effect will kick in faster and often it'll be with fewer side effects. Um, if you're just counting on one treatment to do all the work, you may end up having to push that dose or the amount of it a lot higher and it may take a lot longer to work. And so that typically um, I usually recommend at least three or four treatments uh, to start with. And I caution people. I say, you know, hey, this is gonna. This may seem like a lot. I like to write. I like to write things down for people so they can remember all the things we talked about. And I tell people, you know, hey, this is a. There's actually a really big menu here. So we're going to try some of the things. It's a little bit like when you go to a new restaurant. You ask the waiter, like, what do people usually order when they come here? You know, maybe you want to try something which works well for most people and is, uh, and is relatively affordable and rel- and has few side effects. And if you've never tried that, that would make a lot of sense to try that at the beginning. But you know, if you've tried that and you've tried a couple other medicines that are very similar to that and it's still not getting you there, then maybe it's, tr- it's time to try something uh, a little more exotic, you know, what, what doctors would call a second line or a third line medication. And we don't call them, th- we don't call it second line because it's not as good. We call it second line because you don't, you typically don't try that until you've tried something from the first line and then you go through it. And, and in my experience, if I'm able to develop a partnership uh, with a patient or able to sort of have this kind of uh, frank discussion with each other and if the patient feels comfortable telling me, hey, this worked, uh, but this, this I, can't, I can't take it or I took it for two months and I didn't and I don't think it does anything for me. Um, and we have this ongoing conversation. I'm able to get almost everybody dramatically better um, going forwards. Uh, unfortunately, the inside of the head is mm-hmm. is sort of the original black box. And so um, with picking headache treatments, we have a lot, there are a lot of clues we can get from the way people's head, people describe their headaches and other aspects of them, and we can guess which medicines might work better, which medicines might be more preferable for this particular patient. But we don't really have a good way right now to, you know, look inside your brain and see what what needs, you know, what needs to be adjusted or what needs fixing. So there's always going to be some element of trial and error there, where we have to work together and develop some uh, some mutual respect and trust to keep working together to find something that's going to work great for that person. Great. So as our parting question here, I would love uh, to hear a little bit about what's catching your interest right now. 
Um, well, one of the things that I've been uh, studying more is the field of uh, lifestyle medicine. Mm -hmm. So um, last, last year, I went to a headache conference um, where we had a, a section for uh, lifestyle medicine, um, for uh, neurology and headache. And it was really pretty interesting. And I discovered that there was this whole whole independent field of lifestyle medicine that you could actually study and become certified in. And so that's one of the things I'm pursuing now is to learn is to try to really learn that. I there's it's a, been an interest of mine for a long time because like I said I it's something I address with almost every patient already, but I hadn't really realized that um the field has become um pretty scientific and uh, there's a lot there's a lot more evidence there than people might think uh, what I mean is scientific evidence that they've actually tried tried a lot of things and found some things which seem to seem to consistently work more than just more than just anecdotes and so that that's a really exciting area for me to be learning about um, the other the other area that I've been working on is an type of psychotherapy called ACT therapy, um, which is, um, um, it's basically one of the, it's one of the types of psychotherapy which has, uh, is kind of a distant offshoot of sort of Buddhist psychology and mindfulness, where part, part of the idea of ACT therapy is that um, it's very normal to have uh, to have those, to have bad feelings, self-deprecating thoughts, lack of confidence, and that um, part and part of the idea of ACT is helping patients accept that part of what is making, for example, a sad thought so difficult to deal with is the fact that they really don't want to have that sad thought and they're trying really hard to, to push it out of their heads. And so... That's one of those, the summary doesn't really do it justice. There's a lot more to it than that, but it's a really fascinating area and it's been uh, addressed a lot for um, uh, chronic pain in recent, recent years. ACT stands for acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and sometimes people have sort of simplified that as you just need to teach people to accept their chronic pain. Um, I think that's a really horrible way to put it. It's, uh, and I've seen... I've seen pe I've seen people blow their top when they've when they've had act therapy suggested to them that way. So that I want to make it clear that that's not that's not what it's about. It's not about just learning to accept and put up with put up with something. Um, that that's really not the idea. But it is it is an interesting um, what, what we call an evidence based therapy. And like a lot of these psychotherapies, it's it's been used in lots of different areas, but it's and it's been used in chronic pain for a while. Um, it's very recent that it's been used in um, headache medicine. So that's another area that I'm pursuing. Fantastic. Well, if you're open to it, I would love, I have a lot, I think we have a lot more to discuss. The, the thing that I was trying to remember before that I just remembered is talking about um, uh, central pain sensitization. Um, and so that's a very big topic. And um, if you're open, I would love to do another podcast maybe in another month or so and we can just oh, talk about terrific. fibromyalgia central pain sensitization how we and how we use things like act or 
whatever else to kind of get to wedge open a space so that people can think and recover and heal. Uh, sure. I'd, I'd love to do that. If we could bring, uh, we could talk maybe a bit about uh, chronic fatigue syndrome too. I think yeah. all of those areas are really intimately linked and um, that, that's a really fascinating subject. I think it's extremely relevant to the headache audience too. Absolutely. And I just want to mention that all of the things that you're saying, especially especially here at the end in terms of multimodal um, approaches and in terms of the ACT therapy, what I'm hearing is not really accepting the physical pain, but accepting that we will have feelings about what we think um, and accepting what those feelings are to be able to look at them more frankly and more practically. Um, all of those concepts were built into Ayurveda 10,000 years ago. So Ayurveda 10,000 years ago talked about multimodal therapy, talked about lifestyle medicine, talked about that really are who we are and what we think and feel and how we feel comes from the moment by moment awareness that mm-hmm. we have about our day and how right. we breathe, how we, what we do with our eyes, our bodies, our food, pain, that very close attention and even really balancing that now and late those now and later brain circuits. Um, Well, that's kind of the secret. That's kind of the secret history of uh, modern medicine. I think uh, that people don't, don't talk, don't always talk about that much is that uh, in the 19, you know, the late fifties and 1960s, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, Californian doctors, started you know hanging out with hippies and uh learning about you know learning about asian philosophy and asian you know asian medicine and um a lot of them were pretty young and over time they sort of started codifying some of these things and then smuggling and at least in psychiatry they've sort of been gradually smuggling a lot of you know a lot of these ideas into medicine under under names like uh dialectical behavior therapy and a mindful mindfulness-based stress reduction and you know act therapy and all all these things and all of them you know if you if you have studied ayurveda or if you've you know if you've studied you know mindfulness or buddhist meditation a lot of it is going to be like hey this is this is kind of a secularized cleaned up version of the same of pretty much the same insights uh but i feel um so there was a really interesting book uh, called uh, Witch Doctors and Psychiatrists that, uh, by a psychiatrist who uh, argued that uh, psychotherapy was basically sort of the, uh, um, the shamanic, was sort of the shamanic healing for uh, uh, science-minded Western people where instead of, you know, if someone is having trouble with their, is having trouble with their inner life, instead of wrestling with a bear spirit, you know, we deal with their Oedipus complex or something, but it's all, it's all basic. It's all basically the same stuff in different garb. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yes. Yeah. And then we haven't even talked about psilocybin or psychedelics. Right. Right. That's (laughs) what we should probably. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Do you have any last parting thoughts about what we've talked about today? Um, No, it was great. um, Great to talk with you. It's been a far, far ranging conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that we've kind of gone everywhere from electrical stimulation for the brain, specifically for a headache, to the social injustice that's causing a lot of our addiction and stress and trauma and 
um, start in the re- with the recommendation, your excellent recommendation to start with food banks. So thank you so much for being with us today. And we look forward to connecting. And if you're interested in seeing Dan, Dr. Dan Krashen here in clinic, please do just call our front desk 206-379-1213. Or you can email us at reception at centerforhealingneurology.com. His hours currently are limited, but um, they will be growing in time. And we'd love to have you. We're excited to have you on board, Dr. Krashen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening today with Dr. Dan Krashen. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can get more information from and about us on our website at centerforhealingneurology.com. Or even better, come see us in person in our Seattle-based clinic. We are indeed open. For clinic procedures like exosomes, stem cell therapy, IV therapy, VASPR, hyperbaric oxygen, and visits that require an evaluation, we are also available for remote telemedicine visits. Please be sure to share this show with your friends and we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.